From seductive dragon ladies to nerdy sidekicks, gendered Asian stereotypes are as much a part of American culture as, well, Chinese chicken salads and the kung fu font. Hi, I'm Kristen Leong, and I'm your guest host for KUAW Speakers Forum. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Joe Kai. Joe is a musician and storyteller based in Portland, Oregon, and... Fun fact, Joe and I met a few years ago when I was producing my very first public radio story. It was all about Joe and his hip-hop violin rebellion. Welcome to the show, Joe. Kristen, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here because these are crucial conversations, not just for Asian Americans, but for our whole country as we look to grow into a better version of ourselves. This is also the first time I've hosted a radio show, so bucket list check. We are so glad you're here, Joe. This is a special episode of Speakers Forum. Tonight's show is part of the On Asian America series, a collaboration between Humanities Washington, KUAW, Spokane Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. I'm excited to dive in, but first, Joe, let's give folks an idea of what they'll hear in today's show. Sure. So first, we are going to meet Cindy Gallup. She is the founder of a website called Make Love, Not Porn. She's going to tell us what the adult film industry is doing to disrupt stereotypes of Asian women. We will also hear from University of Washington professor Douglas Ishii on the history of the Asian American movement and also what it's like to date as an Asian man. And then we're going to pass the mic to writer Simon Tran. Simon interviewed Brooklyn-based photographer Andrew Kung, whose series The All-American is reimagining what Asian masculinity looks like. And for our finale, we're going to hear the latest song from my co-host today, Joe Kai, featuring artist Austin Antoine. We are so excited for that premiere, Joe. Kristen, I cannot wait to share it. I'm literally rocking back and forth right now. That is exactly the energy we need. If you haven't figured it out already, today's show is all about gender, sexuality, and Asian identity in America. Almost all of the voices you'll hear today are Asian, including mine and Kristen's. But we do have a note on that. Let's be real. Asians are not a monolith. There are 48 countries in Asia and literally hundreds of Asian languages and cultures. Will all of those cultures be represented in today's show? Unfortunately, we only have an hour, so no. But here's the thing. Our hope is that today's show is just the start of a conversation. Thanks for mentioning that, Joe. And if you're listening today and you don't hear your story represented, reach out. We are always listening. You can email us at engage at KUAW.org or tweet at us at KUAW Engage. For real, we read all of your messages and we are always looking for new voices to share. And so with that, let's get started. Again, we're your hosts. I'm Kristen Leong. And I'm Joe Kai. Welcome to Speakers Forum, and please note, today's episode includes language of an adult nature. So this first story is a little spicy for public radio. It is, but you know, if we are doing a show about gender, sexuality, and Asian representation, there is one woman we just had to talk to, and she happens to be probably the only person in the history of TED whose TED Talk has to be censored for the radio. Well, lucky for us, that provocative talk is right at the top. Also, I love pretty much anything spicy, so let's take a listen. My co-host Kristen Leong has the story. Nobody looks at an Asian woman and goes, there's a bloody brilliant business brain in there. That's Cindy Gallup. 
advertising woman of the year and CEO. She calls herself the Michael Bay of business, a nod to the big budget filmmaker known for graphic, stylized explosions because she says she likes to blow shit up. She did exactly that on stage at TED in 2009. Here are her opening remarks. I date younger men, predominantly men in their 20s. And when I date younger men, I have sex with younger men. And when I have sex with younger men, I encounter very directly and personally the real ramifications of the creeping ubiquity of hardcore pornography in our culture. Gallup's TED Talk was not only provocative for what she said, but also for who was saying it. Gallup is a half Chinese woman now in her 60s. There is absolutely this stereotype that Asian women are sweet, smiling, submissive, feminine, you know, um, all of which is saying, you know, they are everything the patriarchy would like them to be. Gallup's TED Talk was not just about subverting expectations on stage and in her dating life as an older Asian woman. It was also a rally call to transform the internet, one adult video at a time. Gallup's TED Talk served as the launch of her website that's aiming to do exactly that. It's called Make Love Not Porn. Here's how it works. The site is like Facebook, but instead of sharing puppy pictures and birthday wishes, users share videos of themselves having sex. Members pay to watch the videos, and half of that fee goes directly to the adult filmmakers. Every featured video must be approved by a curator, an actual person, not an algorithm. According to one curator for the site, the videos that get accepted are those that show consensual, real-world sex without performance. Viewers can leave comments on the films and interact directly with the people featured in them. Right, so, so first of all, this is very important, make love not porn is not porn, okay? We, we are pioneering a whole new category, social sex. And like I said, we are pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. In our conversation, Gallup repeatedly underscored that her site is not a porn site. Emphasizing this distinction makes sense for a brand led by a woman known as a champion of female empowerment. Although attitudes may be shifting, pornography has long been seen as objectifying at best and encouraging of violence against women at worst, especially women of color. So, considering the moment we're in, I couldn't help but wonder, are Gallup's real-world sex videos really making a difference? There was one question I just had to ask. What would you say to public radio listeners who are listening to this and thinking to themselves, you know, we are in the midst of a civil rights reckoning that we have not seen in our lifetime, right? There is a call for change right now that is urgent in a very new way. And who are listening to this and saying, why does porn matter in this conversation? I'll tell you why what we're doing at Make Love Not Porn matters. First of all, Make Love Not Porn is a place where you will find nothing but love. We celebrate nothing but love. We showcase nothing but love. Who we are sexually informs everything about how we feel about ourselves, our relationships, other people, our lives, our very happiness. Everybody deserves to have all of that shame and guilt taken away. You know, I talk about Make Love Not Porn as a shame changer. You know, that's what we are. And to be a whole person and especially be able to relish that when society is putting all of us in boxes, often based on our sexuality, as much as our race, ethnicity or anything else. So in other words, Gallup might be taking a provocative approach, but her message is a familiar one. 
We have to first accept ourselves if we want to be better at accepting other people. In 2017, Canada's McGill University also thought there were larger lessons to be learned by taking a closer look at pornography. In a study that examined nearly 200 pornographic videos, McGill found that compared to videos featuring black and white women, films featuring Asian and Latino women were more likely to depict aggression. The study also posited that, in contrast to mainstream film and television, the adult film industry is one of the few places in the media where Asian and Latino women have higher visibility. Because of that increased presence, the study pointed to the possible importance of the porn industry in perpetuating, but also reshaping, stereotypes of these women. When I asked Gallup what "Make Love Not Porn" is doing differently in terms of representation, she said there's no fetishizing of Asian women or any other women of color on her site. She also added that the Asian women who do share videos often express that they feel liberated by the site's framework. The evidence, Gallup says, is in the comment section. It's as much, to be honest, Kristen, about what people do not say on "Make Love Not Porn." As as what they do say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about one of our Asian make love not porn stars, Yin Yang Tao, who who is very popular.、Um, there are always wonderful comments on her videos, and the comments are just about how wonderful she is, and you know, it, it's about the fact that there, there is nothing、um, related to race in any of that. In fact, Gallup claims that her site rarely, if ever, receives racist comments from members. She points to this as evidence that her site has the potential to shift the way Western viewers see Asian women, and in the meantime, she says the way Asian women see themselves is already changing. She says even in Japan, there's a feminist movement building there, even if people might not be ready to call it that. Japan is quite frankly,、um, in my view, the most sexist Asian country. Okay, I mean they're all sexist, but Japan goes to whole new heights of whole new depths rather of sexism, and and so on. Every one of my trips over the years,、um, I've increasingly found in my conversations with Japanese women that they are less and less willing to to stay in the place that society puts them in, and you know. Um, whether or not they call it this,、um, feminism is absolutely taking hold、um, in Japan, and women are not prepared to live the way they have before. Like these Japanese women, Gallup describes, people all over the world these days seem less and less willing to accept the status quo. And it's not just fair treatment and better opportunities that historically marginalized communities are calling for, but safety and security too. In 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement showed the world that protesting and organizing can lead to real transformation. Currently, we are in the midst of a surge in awareness about the reality of anti-Asian racism in the United States, like we have never seen before. For members and allies of the Asian community, there's a sense that the time for action has finally come. Gallup says the social media activism we're seeing now is a mix of sincerity and performative empathy, but that's okay, she says. It all helps the cause. As always, there is a wave of caring. There is also a wave of got to be seen to be caring. And quite frankly, Kristen, that's fine because I always go, I don't care what the mot motivation is as long as you help. So basically, you know, we should absolutely seize this environment to make the things that we want to happen happen.
That was Make Love Not Porn founder Cindy Gallup. That story was written and produced by me with editing support from Jim Gates. You can find some great photos of Cindy and a link to her site at KUAW.org slash speakers. You know, listening to that story, I couldn't help but think about this idea that there's there's a budding feminist movement in Japan. And yet here in the United States, there's been a surge of Asian women and elders being attacked and killed in cities across the country. And authorities are like, I don't know if there's a pattern here. I don't know if we can call this a hate crime. Right. If only there were some kind of commonality connecting all of these crimes. It's it's just baffling. And on top of that, Joe, there's still so much debate about whether or not Asians in America experience discrimination or even who gets to be counted as Asian at all. We need a movement or at least a hashtag we can all get behind. Indeed. And think about how powerful that could be. Pew Research projects that the Asian population in the U.S. is going to surpass 46 million people by the year 2060. What? Can we uh, can we call it Asian invasion? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so our numbers are skyrocketing. Over the last two decades, folks checking Asian on their census forms, including me, increased by 95%. That's just since the year 2000. That's some significant growth in our Asian community, Joe. But the thing is, those numbers are only as impactful as our ability to work together. That's right. And unfortunately, if Dr. Ishii is right and history is any indication, the Asian American movement still has a lot of work to do if we're going to be more than just a demographic of potential customers. Let's take a listen. Here's Professor Douglas Ishii. He's with the University of Washington, and he specializes in Asian American literature and culture. What are you seeing as gendered representations of Asians today and take a look back with us. Where do you think these images have come from? I really love and appreciate this question because it's just so large, right? And thinking about contemporary issues that we're dealing with today, for example, reflecting on this increased fear and anxiety amongst Asian Americans about daily safety, as well as sort of ongoing machinations with geopolitics, it does come back to these questions of gender representations. What am I seeing? What I do in my classes is that I ask students to think about representations not just as isolated images, but as always caught in institutions and systems of power. So in thinking about some of what I'm seeing, I think about how people are very excited about what they're seeing as this new visibility of Asian American celebrities and Asian American stories and all sorts of media. And that's really exciting. And they argue that it goes against kind of the dual controlling images of Asian American men as either sexless martial artists or effeminate helpers and Asian American women as dragon ladies or Susie Wong's. And I'm like, that's great. But then also in thinking about representation as a system, a lot of these new representations we're seeing of like the cool hipster Asian American or the Asian American best friend or the quirky Asian American lady are all about constructing Asian Americans as a market instead of as a dynamic human people. Could you expand on that, the Asian American as a market? Absolutely. I mean, of course, you know this, I know this, hopefully everyone listening knows this. There technically is no such thing as an Asian American, right? The very term comes out of a social movement history that for better or worse has gone mainstream. So sometimes Asian American is an identity of our own creating, other times 
it's an identity imposed on us through systems like self state identification. So to think about Asian Americans as a market, there was so much important activism taking place across the decades about having more human representations of Asian Americans. And in talking about the so what and why is this important, some of these arguments were about being able to see Asian Americans as part of the American fabric, whatever that means, or as part of the American family, whatever that means. But another key part was because Asian Americans have all of this income and to continue to treat us as less than human or as not included in this storyline or this representation or this advertisement means that you don't get our money. On the one hand, I mean, consumer politics have an important place in time. But if we're reduced just to what we can spend and what we can give you financially, that's also not a great humanizing argument, right? But this has been the sort of key thing. If we think about research done by the Nielsen's, a lot of this is about identifying the Asian, Asian American demographic in order to maximize our contribution. So that's a lot of what I mean by Asian Americans as a market. Another way that this term kind of gets taken out of the realm of politics and organizing and community, and then kind of pushed down on us as because you're Asian American, we will satisfy your desires. And that links back to your comment earlier about this stereotype of the Asian woman as a dragon lady or a Susie Wong. Can you tell us more, expand on this idea of the Susie Wong? Absolutely, right. And thinking about these gendered representations of Asian American women, if we use an intersectional framework, we understand that it's not just about Asian American womanhood. It's also through these representations and misrepresentations of sexuality. So if we think about the longer history, this image of, and here I'm borrowing from language that Asian American feminists have used to talk about media images and their relationship to the real experiences of Asian and Asian American women. So for example, I'm thinking about the work of Asian Women United in giving this analysis. If we think about the controlling image of the Dragon Lady, this technically goes back centuries to the rise of US imperialism throughout East Asia, of then characterizing Asian American women as being somehow deviant and bad and menacing as a way of then controlling sexual desire and sort of justifying the imposition of U.S. military and economic power because you have this entire gender of raced ladies who are out to get us. So if the dragon lady represents the sexless menacing version, the other archetype and controlling image is the Susie Wong, which is taken from the name of a classic Hollywood film because she is the sad helper who only desires white American male love because that makes her complete and she is there to serve. It is then also connected to misrepresentations of Asian American women sex workers. It's also attached to this historical configuration of Asian women as sex workers that has a specific history in the history of US militarism throughout the war's fought in the Pacific, so across the 20th century. The stereotypes that you describe for Asian women are a stark contrast to the stereotypes we see for Asian men. Earlier, you mentioned this idea of the desexualized martial artist. Talk more about stereotypes of Asian men. Stereotypes of Asian men. And of course, we're operating within the false sex gender binary that's also been imposed on all of us. What is the space for gender fluidity or gender variance? Obviously, there's none because these are not images of our own making. In thinking about the representations of Asian American men, 
on the one hand, I had this prepared thought, and then I read that report that came out literally yesterday about how most non-Asian Americans can't name a famous Asian, and if they can, it is Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan. So in thinking about the ways that the image of Asian American masculinity has been used, on the one hand, we have the sexless martial artist. I'm thinking about Bruce Lee's films in America, where he is known for possessing this kind of otherworldly power, but is never fully humanized in that power. And by that, I mean, in terms of having emotional desires beyond the need to express power. He's not given agency to think about life and goals, except for making it through this fight. This is attached to the longer history of U.S. fascination with things that are Asian and marked as other. And then, of course, there is the issue that many Asian American men and masculine identified people have been talking about, about emasculation, which has a direct historical link to anti-miscegenation laws that were state by state, particularly up and down the Pacific coast, where you have Asian men imported as laborers who then are bachelors who have wants and desires for love and sex and desire. So one way of then implementing this need to keep racial groups separate, on the one hand, you have law and policy. On the other hand, you have this controlling image of Asian men as not being desirable, such that we can convince people that there is no business for an Asian man to be with women, specifically white women. So what I'm hearing from you is it's this desire to kind of control the competition. And I'm hearing that echoed both in how Asian men and Asian women are um, pigeonholed. Oh, absolutely. Right. Because. And the interesting thing about these binaries of controlling images is that they don't operate on a one to one basis, even though there's a nice arithmetic of two each. That's just kind of the conceptual mode that we use to get the message across. In a way, Asian American women are simultaneously desexualized and hypersexualized. We definitely see this in terms of the aftermath of the murders in Atlanta, Georgia, in terms of how, on the one hand, there is this hyperassociation of the Korean women who lost their lives as sex workers, which then led to a really hard conversation about destigmatizing sex work, number one, while also, number two, recognizing that this association is, has a historical legacy that comes from the war spot in Korea and the production of sex work alongside military work. These stereotypes that you describe are so familiar. They have been part of American history for so long, but we're seeing some interesting changes. I would say in the last year, and part of that, I think the Black Lives Matter movement bringing conversations about race and racism to everyday American dinner tables. But in particular, the last few months, you know, following the Atlanta spa shooting, we're seeing shifts, or at least a, a call for shifts in representations of Asians in the media, especially gendered representations of Asians. What changes are you starting to see? Oh, I'm definitely seeing a lot more excitement. And I'm seeing a larger quantity. I know that you asked me a direct question and I do not have a direct answer because also in thinking about the way that a lot of these representations are not created from Asian American communities. I mean, there may be Asian American creators, but not working in concert with 
an idea or image of community a lot of times imposed through industries that actually don't care about the dignity of Asian American life outside of money. Uh, one key issue that I see with these representations do I love a good rom-com? Absolutely. But there have been so many great pieces out there by Asian American thinkers about how this kind of rise of the Asian American as hero always seems to be written about Asian Americans' proximity to white American identity. And so if we are taking seriously that a lot of these conversations are coming up in relation to the movement for Black lives, specifically related to the events of summer 2020, where are Black people in our world? both in terms of representation, but also in terms of our daily lives. In what ways are we talking about Asian Americans being included and included with whom? And who is constructing our image of what it means to be the America of Asian America? I know you thought a lot about those themes in terms of the film Crazy Rich Asians. Can you tell us more about your thoughts about that movie? What interests me is the conversation around the movie. Do I love a good Hollywood blockbuster? Absolutely. Do I think that it's political progress? Not in the way that we're talking about it. So when director John Chu talks about this is a movement and when actors and audiences get together and say, this is a movement, I ask the question movement for what? And I view this not as a fault of an Asian American movement per se, as much as it is the kind of symbolic capital, right? This kind of reputation and image that has been associated with the term movement and movement making. It has both this aura of being politically progressive as well as having this type of recognizability that now we can finally recognize that there is this trend going on. But I question what those politics mean because so much of this Asian American movement around crazy rich Asians was about getting more studio-based representation for Asian Americans. And I'm like, to what extent does that benefit those Asian Americans who aren't represented? If we understand Asian America as living in a bimodal distribution, right? I'm drawing with my finger two humps on a graph in terms of we see a lot of the more affluent Asian Americans with class privilege, citizenship privilege, language access, but there are just as many, if not more Asian Americans who in fact are deeply impacted by socioeconomic disparity and barriers to access. Is it possible that because representation is so important and seems kind of like a first step, even when we have films like Crazy Rich Asians, which of course portrays a very wealthy Asian people who are also very beautiful, do you think there's a possibility that films like that still have a positive effect, say, on our working class and middle class? Asian communities? Oh, Kristen, you're asking me difficult questions because, for example, I love rolling in and teaching problematic films in my classes. In one of them, in a class about what's called the, the trans-Pacific turn in Asian American literature, where we're really thinking about not only connections between North America and Asia, but thinking about the people and the water and the ecologies that get passed through to make this bridge. I had a class on this topic. We watched Crazy Rich Asians. My students really resonated with, on the one hand, their own excitement about feeling seen on the big screen and having such fervor by both Asian Americans and non-Asian Americans alike about this representation, but then also really questioning what it means in terms of systems of power. I mean, this is a film that takes place 
in Singapore that erases the kind of multiracial society that exists there. It erases the role of state power that has characterized Singapore and also reduces the idea of Asia to like the Pacific Tigers narrative with the one exception of the one Asian American in the film played by Constance Wu. She then represents the, she gives the dramatic speech about the working class, immigrant, single mother. It's like a real power moment, but I also don't know what that means outside of being excited about this one dramatic speech, right? Because this is a film that operates outside of an Asian American political context. So to answer your question, that was a non-answer. Please ask a follow-up. My follow-up is this idea of the exotic other. I hear you um, applying that not just to individual Asian people, but to Asia at large. You know, Edward Said's book, Orientalism, was such a game changer. How would you describe the theory of Orientalism or this idea of the exotic other to somebody, to a listener who is brand new to this idea? It's such an excellent and important question because, like you're saying, the idea is oftentimes traced to Edward Said's book, Orientalism, and has been the language that Asian American activists and producers have used to understand systems of power in relation to these representations of difference. So Orientalism, as a system of thought, divides the world into an East and a West. And we have to understand that this is East and West are relationships, like they're defined in relation to one another as opposed to being actual places because we live on a sphere. So there really is no East or West outside of the direction we're traveling. And in fact, we're talking about Seattle. We actually fly West to get to most of Asia, right? As we can see, it's very much a cultural construction. But even though East and West are fictional, Orientalism is also really real because there have been books upon books upon books upon studies, upon stories, upon histories based around this division of the world into East and West. And as Edward Said argues, Orientalism actually tells us very little about the so-called East. It tells us the story of what the West thinks about itself. So to get to the actual question, the exotic other, in dividing the world into East and West, there also then is the division of the world through these binaries. So the West is oftentimes defined as progressive and rational and advanced and civilized, And then the East then gets the degraded part of those binaries of being passive and backwards and regressive and always kind of trapped in a primitive state. So then to talk about Orientalism and the exotic other, that exoticness, this outsiderness is through the binary of the East. And we see this over and over again, not only historically, but now every time that there's an American who is often white, who ventures then into the far distant land the magical spaces of Asia and the Orient to then find themselves the mystical discoveries of joy and food and sexuality and travel. And then what's the real life implications? What's the experience of Asians who are in the West in a place that has embraced this idea of the exotic other? Oh, what is the effect on Asian Americans who then get caught up in it? Oh, on the one hand, there is the more there's the more obvious answer coming from our experiences about how then we, who regardless of our actual citizenship or our own cultural identity, experience racial difference through how we appear at this very sort of like individual level. 
And through this kind of individual appearance difference, we then experience racialization, right? We are then transformed into a race who then become the ambassadors and emissary to what this racial difference is supposed to represent, right? People's ticket to the Orient, right? Have I been on dates where gentlemen then ask me to tell them about my experiences of Asia and my experiences of Asian culture? And then I wag my finger and scream, Asia is made up of a rich variety of peoples, nationalities, and cultures, and ethnic groups, and religious groups, and you are just reducing it? Absolutely. This is all a reflection of this pervasiveness of Orientalism, even though the term Oriental and the Orient, we said, is no longer okay to say. But at like a less obvious level, sometimes our own individual struggles with this indignity of being marked as other and being marked as exotic kind of gets us caught in a trap of only talking about representation. I hear a lot of people talking about the most important thing is to fight the stereotype and I'm making fists and punching at the camera because we imagine the stereotype as the only thing afflicting our lives. This then is another thing that cuts us off from thinking about larger political structures and systems of power because we imagine the controlling image as the only thing and lose sight of the institutions and systems that it upholds. We end up acting very individually instead of collectively. I want to circle back to you on your dates. <laughs> so let's hear more about the response when you have to pause and point out that Asia incorporates so many different cultures and languages. Uh, what kinds of responses have you received? I'm a newcomer to the Pacific Northwest, but I also imagine this to be true of most metropolitan areas, right? What's useful about the term microaggression is talking about these situations where there may not be a stated ill intention, right? No one's looking to hurt your feelings, marginalize you, or do some type of violence on you. However, the impact is reinforcing these systems of power, these biases, and these prejudices. So most conversations where I am asked about Asia end up being a type of microaggression. What's it like to take a pause? I mean, I would like to hear about your experiences as well, because sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I call it out. Sometimes I scream. Other times I go to the bathroom for an extended period of time and text my Asian American BFF and be like, it happened again. Sometimes I just bite my tongue and say, I'm too tired to fight this battle right now because this is supposed to be my not work time and I'm not being paid to educate you. Do you ever have the experience of feeling like I'm just going to date Asians from now on? Absolutely. Yes. So I also teach classes related to Asian American sexuality, approaching these large questions of gender, controlling image, sexual practices, sexual desires, fantasies, imperialism, connecting the very personal experience of intimacy and identity to these larger systems of power. Do I ever say we should all actually just date Asian? Yes, and, right? Because this is another way that we ourselves continue to imagine ourselves as Asian Americans only in relation to whiteness. So many representations of interracial love, interracial dating are about an Asian American and a white American person. And of course it's beautiful, etc. Wonderful. I love my multiracial mixed race family. But also, what about the rest of America? What about the rest of the world? And this inward turn to Asians plus Asians. On the one hand, it's very politically important because it means that we've worked through our own internalizing of white supremacist images of ourselves. On the other hand, it also may maybe lead to a kind of insularity because 
we only imagine difference as another Asian, oftentimes another Asian of our own ethnic group, when there's just like a wide world of people who also experience controlling images where we have not then checked, for example, our internalized xenophobia, our internalized anti-Blackness. This is a perfect segue to talk more about solidarity. Can you tell us some examples of moments of solidarity between the Asian American movement and the LGBTQ movement, either when there was success or when there were struggles or barriers? So when really thinking about where movements come together, I of course put movement in quotation marks because it's such an interesting term. All throughout our conversation, I'm very ambivalent about things. There's always a yes and. On the one hand, by calling something a movement, we then bring together different peoples and representations and campaigns and actions under one heading. But on the other hand, people then use the term movement to sort of reduce things to a monolith, right? This keyword in Asian American life, we are not a monolith, neither are our struggles or our movements. So when students and I talk about this, we read the lifelong activist Helen Zia's essay, Where the Queer Zone Meets the Asian Zone, where she talks about how the struggle for marriage equality, which is not the beginning or end of LGBTQ plus struggles, but as a key visible struggle, it actually has very much an Asian American story behind it, of key court cases where Asian Americans are the plaintiffs, of key Asian American civic organizations being the first to stand up for marriage equality, of Asian Americans representing some of the key players within it. This history gets entirely erased because we just don't think about our interconnection. So our Asian American usage of the Black feminist theory of intersectionality has really been like, why don't we think of queer Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders? Why is mainstream sections of the lesbian and gay community, right? So here we're talking about something very mainstream. Why is it that it's so white normative and at times very exclusive to whiteness? And when it comes to Asian American and Pacific Islanders, Number one, where even are the Pacific Islanders when we talk about AAPI? But the number two, within this formation, where do we leave room to talk about gender and LGBTQ plus identities and experiences? And why do we always view it as a subset or as a side conversation instead of fundamental to what brings us together? So that was a long answer to then say things that really excite me about the overlaps actually don't have as much to do with specifically Asian American or specifically LGBTQ plus organizing. But when I go out in Seattle to a rally or demonstration, for example, in relation to the ongoing movement for Black Lives, to see t-shirts of people who look like me that say Asians for Black Lives, and to go out and see rainbow flags and all types of representations of sex and gender and for it to be a fun queer party, that to me is really where I'm excited by the overlaps. You mentioned that the Asian American movement was very active in supporting LGBTQ marriage rights. Why would that be a logical pairing? I think part of it is that it's seen as so illogical, number one. But then number two, for example, the Japanese American Citizens League was the first civil rights organization in 1994 to speak out on behalf of marriage equality. On the one hand, we are all individual people who are informed by multiple types of desires, so there's not always a logical link. But it is like this group that was formed and has a difficult history of speaking out on behalf of the Japanese American community and then more expansively the Asian American community. 
that on the one hand started out as very much proving Americanness, and then after the crucible of World War II became dedicated to recognition and reparations for Japanese American incarceration. As a civil rights dedicated group, it very much makes sense then to stand up for the rights of all. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? My parting thought is that in talking to not only my students, but also people with whom I'm in conversation and organizers, I make the distinction between substantive inclusion and additive inclusion. So additive like addition. Oftentimes our conversations end up being about additive inclusion of adding more representations without actually questioning what is the type of representation that we want. So to get to something more substantive, Asian American men, we really have to check our investment in patriarchy, in misogyny, in heteronormativity, in heterosexism, Asian American women. We have to think about women as an inclusive category. We have to think about what falls outside the gender sex binary. We have to think about multiple sexualities and sexual orientations. And we also have to just really stop thinking about ourselves in relation to whiteness. What's your hope for the future of representations of Asian and mainstream culture? It's such a difficult and interesting question in this moment, because on the one hand, I pound my fist, I shake my finger at our current discussions of representation. And then I'm given this stark reminder that people don't actually know that people like us exist. So it's this multiple levels of struggle. Because on the one hand, yes, Asian American representation is important in a world in which our experience of racism is to be rendered invisible. But then we can't say that Asian American invisibility is the only thing afflicting Asian Americans or non-white groups in America more widely. So let's think about our interconnected and interrelated struggles. I want representation to really reflect this fact. You know, another thing, thinking about that Asian invisibility in your journey, to through academia and your journey through dating, in what ways have you personally been impacted by that invisibility? Oh, I'm sure every Asian American has their own story of raced invisibility. My own journey is if we're talking about not only dating, but also issues of friendship or coworkers, this kind of interchangeability between Asian faces that look like mine as one version of Asian American invisibility. There is the under-recognition of contributions by non-white people more widely, but part of how white supremacy works alongside the model minority myth is that, of course, we would just be achievers, so we would not actually need any type of recognition or support in our greatness. Our greatness happens in spite of these things, not because of them, but it's also lifted up through them. In terms of, for example, doing intellectual work in this field of Asian American studies, people are constantly forgetting that Asian Americans have a history and that Asian American people, to all you listeners, we have a responsibility to lift up our more interesting, progressive, radical histories, instead of always assuming that we're the first ones to discover that there could be a problem because we can learn so much from our elders. Thank you so much, Dr. Ishii. It has been wonderful talking with you today. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. That was Professor Douglas Ishii of the University of Washington. That piece was produced by John O'Brien. Dr. Ishii's forthcoming book is called Something Real, Asian American Arts Activism and the Radicalization of Sophistication. You can find a link to his site at kuw.org speakers. 
You know, Joe, I'm noticing some patterns here. Dr. Ishii talked about the Susie Wong trope. We should mention that that's a character who was a prostitute in the 1960s British film, The World of Susie Wong, where she played the love interest and muse to a white male artist. Cindy Gallup also emphasized the pervasiveness of the image of the submissive, sexualized Asian woman. In fact, every guest we talked to for this episode cited some version of that dragon lady stereotype for Asian women and then pointed out what a contrast that image is to stereotypes of Asian men. Yes, the weak, emasculated Asian male. And I think in my younger days, in situations where that stereotype surfaced, I would shrink away. Uh, But now as a father to a son and a daughter, I find myself angry. Angry that their relationship to gender and sexuality, let alone their heritage, is predetermined by white supremacy. You know, Joe, I'm so glad that you're here today. It's so impactful to hear you respond, not just as a listener and as an Asian man, but also as a parent. And that is the perfect segue to our next piece. First, a little background on the story. We decided to pass the mic to writer Simon Tran to do this interview with Andrew Kung. I met Simon earlier this year when he wrote an essay for our Seattle Story Project about what it was like for him growing up as one of the only Asian or gay kids at his high school. I was so excited to have the opportunity to learn about Andrew and his series, The All-American, but I knew I wasn't the right person to lead this conversation. We needed someone who has a stake in Andrew's mission to reimagine Asian masculinity, and not just through the lens of race, but also gender and sexuality and sexual orientation. Lucky for us, Simon nailed it, and we are so grateful to have him and also you, Joe, as part of our extended KUOW family. Aw, you know, I'm all about my public radio people. And now here they are. This is Simon Tran interviewing Brooklyn-based photographer Andrew Kung. Hi, my name is Simon Tran. I am a storyteller, actor, and cultural producer based in Chicago, Illinois. I study drama and the comparative history of ideas at the University of Washington. Okay, so my name is Andrew Kung. I'm a photographer based in Brooklyn, New York. I grew up in the beautiful city of San Francisco, went to business school at UC Berkeley, worked in Silicon Valley at LinkedIn before realizing that I didn't want to be in that space. So I moved out here to New York and since then have been pursuing photography for the past five years. Andrew, it's so great to meet you. So nice to meet you as well, Simon. Um, so you had mentioned, you know, a little bit about the All American series. Could you describe to me a little bit more about the series? It is an exploration of what it means to be American and what it means to be masculine in the context of the desexualized Asian American man. Um, I did a lot of investigating in my own kind of experiences growing up and some of the microaggressions that I faced and a lot of the aggressions that some of my friends and peers had faced as Asian Americans and also as Asian American men specifically. And so that's when I started really hashing out, like, what are some of these scenes that I wanted to capture from, you know, the classroom or from the locker room where, you know, or the lockers where you kind of had these images of, you know, white women in the lockers and they were the form of beauty. And that made me question, like, why is it that we didn't celebrate APAM in May? Or why is it that 
you know, Asian men were idolizing white women as the form of beauty. I was challenging a lot of these notions that I think that I had and a lot of other Asian American men or uh, boys had growing up. You had mentioned that you grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco. I grew up in Olympia. You know, the Bay Area is known for having a really strong, you know, connection and, you know, community of Asian Americans. But when you went down to the South, to Mississippi, what were some things that you experienced and saw that you kind of can't really experience where you grew up? I think one of the first feelings was just landing in Mississippi and just having everybody stare at you. I really, for the first time, truly felt like a perpetual foreigner or like an outsider that really just did not belong. Um, And it wasn't until I met the members of the Chinese Delta community that I started feeling a bit more kind of kinship and kind of community. uh, Because I think for them, they had to immigrate to the U.S. and grow up in those type of environments And the only people that they had were each other. So they would find community in grocery stores or in potlucks that they'd have every weekend. So I think seeing a lot of that reminds me a lot of, you know, my own family and a lot of the greater Asian American community. You had mentioned the physical spaces, right? So, you know, the locker room, the classroom. I can think of a specific moment in the classroom of one of these microaggressions that you had mentioned. It was in health class and we had to draw the human body. And because I was the smallest, they traced me because it was easier on the construction paper. And they like, you know, had to draw anatomy and they made Mm. like, this was in seventh grade. Wow. And they had, you know, they made those, you know, comments and questions. I was curious if, you know, especially like being Asian men, is there a, a moment that you had of being othered in that physical sense? Yeah, I think for you is that moment where you're kind of being traced and being almost used as a, as a subject because of, you know, your size or whatnot. And I think for me, that experience... Wow, there were, I mean, there were many experiences like that. I think one of the first ones that come to my head is that I think even at an early age, I would hear comments like, oh yeah, you're really attractive for an Asian guy. And I was like, wow, you know, why does it, why can't I just be attractive on like an absolute spectrum? Why does it have to be because I'm an Asian man? Does that imply that we are emasculated, passive, weak, unattractive? You know, is that the norm? Um, in, in the context and in, in why you made that statement. And I think I would hear that um, a lot kind of growing up and even to this day. Totally. You know, through your portraits, you you really showed that. And you, you know, chose three photos uh, that stood out to you. Can you talk to us more about these portraits and why these ones stood out to you? Um, we can start with the two images, the black and white and the color of uh, Jeffrey. I was setting up in Jeffrey's bedroom and I was like, oh, I want to make this uh, a very narrative image. And so I was asking him about his experience as a drag artist um, in L.A. And he told me that it's a very interesting intersection between kind of themes of gender, identity and race, because as a drag artist, Jeffrey had experienced both the desexualization of an Asian, being an Asian American man when he was just walking down the street without his 
um, kind of drag attire or his kind of performance attire. And the moment he would be on stage as a drag artist, he would be fetishized by, you know, a bunch of white men who kind of start catcalling him on stage and made really um, kind of condescending uh, and disturbing comments while he was on stage. So Jeffrey had to experience both what it means to be desexualized and also what it means to be fetishized as an Asian American woman. Um, and so when you look at the two images, you really see a polarizing difference between the kind of different experiences that Jeffrey has to face as a drag artist and also as uh, an Asian American man. Yeah, just adding to that, you know, one of my, I was really curious to hear you talk more about intimacy, because that is a theme that you really, you know, focused on for the all-American, you know, project. And I'm, it's interesting because as Asian American men, like, we're not expected to talk about our feelings. Our cultures don't allow us to be vulnerable or intimate with each other or ourselves. So what, what does intimacy mean in relation to this project, but then also, why did you want to include it? That's a great question. Um, I think intimacy has been such a large taboo in kind of Asian culture, you know, how we're not brought up to say, you know, words of affirmation or affection, like I love you, or um, to have physical touch or or hugs, um, you know, with our parents or family members. I think Intimacy is a theme that's really interesting to me, and I really wanted to bring that across in the images because as an Asian culture, we're not used to seeing that or feeling that, and it doesn't even have to be two people embracing each other, but it could be even just intimacy with kind of yourself and comfort with yourself. We're so used to um, kind of defining masculinity as something that is you know a chiseled jawline a a really built kind of structure a certain type of persona or personality and what it means to be all american and so i think for me a big part was turning that whole idea on its head and saying that masculinity could be intimate it could be soft it could be a range of spectrum of experiences like that of jeffrey Um, and so that intimacy piece and especially how I photographed that was a really big part in kind of turning that idea of masculinity on its head. I love that and as an actor I that really resonates with me because I think that we're expected to go certain routes that are kind of already created for us that are very as you said very they're not on the spectrum they're not nuanced and I actually just finished the book Interior Chinatown I don't know if you've read it yeah and But, you know, they have characters called, you know, the Kung Fu Man, right? That he's trying to make it to that pinnacle kind of level. But then you realize that you're still reaching and, you know, hitting the bamboo ceiling because it's still not enough and it's still not what really represents us. I'm curious to hear more about the other conversations that you had with other Asian American men in this project, what was a common theme that you heard when you were talking to folks that you that you photographed? And so before every shoot, I would really be intentional about asking and telling them, hey, this is the narrative that I'm thinking about for um, this particular image. How does that feel or, or resonate with you? 
And I think oftentimes the theme that would be centered around their narratives was just this feeling of being invisible, um, this feeling of being overlooked um, and also feeling not desired and desexualized by mainstream media, by mainstream media representations, um, and oftentimes by the microaggressions that they face growing up and even today. So I think those are the central themes that came up no matter what the environment was from, you know, the classroom to the, to the lockers to the bedroom. These were all consistent themes that a lot of the subjects would, would talk about. And I think it gives me a lot of um, kind of satisfaction knowing that it isn't just my narrative or it isn't just a couple, you know, people's narratives, but it really is a, a larger narrative that talks about um, some of the themes that the Asian American community has to face and specifically Asian American men. I'm going to f- um, do one more um, question and I think we'll wrap up. In what ways has doing this series impacted the way you see yourself? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I think after doing this series, I was exposed to so many narratives and so many experiences from Asian American men who grew up in the Bay Area to uh, Middle America to the East Coast, um, ranging across uh, gender, sexuality, spectrum, it really exposed me to the different experiences that Asian American men have. And for me, made me more curious to explore even more nuanced narratives. And so I think the series really pushes me and continues to push me to expose myself to different communities, different individuals and different experiences because me as an Asian American man myself, I have you know my own singular experience, but there's so many other experiences out there to learn and to incorporate into my work. And I think as an artist, I have a responsibility to do that as well. So I'm not just telling, you know, my own story, but being able to accurately represent a a broader spectrum of what it means to be Asian American and what it means to be an Asian American man. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for talking with me today. It was an honor to learn about this series, but also just to talk with you. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Really appreciate it. That was writer Simon Tran interviewing Brooklyn-based photographer Andrew Kung. Andrew's portrait series, The All-American, aims to redefine what it means to be masculine and American in the context of the desexualized Asian-American man. You can see portraits from Andrew's project and learn more about his work at KUOW.org slash speakers. Joe, what stood out for you from that interview with Andrew and Simon? Well, Kristen, I have a confession to make. The first email address I ever made in sixth grade was asianshortkid at hotmail.com. So right off the bat, there's a lot in that interview that really resonates with me. Uh, growing up with classmates that were mostly white, I was one of the few Asian kids and I played it up. And I leaned into my otherness in a self-deprecating way, laughing at all sorts of dumb jokes about being Asian. And in many ways, I served myself up as the punchline. I just, I just wanted to be accepted. Uh, And even though I had quote-unquote friends, when you're the jester and clown, you never get the girl. Like everyone else, I had a lot of crushes in middle school, but I don't think anyone really thought of me as romantic material, including myself. So the only place I would see people that look like me playing a romantic lead was in Korean dramas that my family would rent on VHS from the Korean grocery store. 
So when I hear Andrew's story and look at some of these beautiful images he's capturing, it gives me a sense of pride. These are Asian men expressing their confidence and narrating their own gender from an authentic place of power instead of subscribing to traditional American models, you know, like uh, lumberjack, quarterback, white. (laughs) You know, Joe, listening to you, it makes me grateful for projects like Andrew's and also conversations like we're having now because it gives me a little bit of hope that our kids are actually growing up in a different world than what we remember when we were teenagers. And, you know, there was so much overlap between Simon and Andrew's conversation and another conversation that you recently shared with me that you had with artist Austin Antoine. We're going to take a listen to part of that audio now. But first, what can you tell us about how this conversation came to be? Sure. So a few months ago, I saw a call for new work from this awesome radio producer I know named Kristen Leong, a collaboration between your newsletter, Rock Paper Radio, and the Slants Foundation, uh, looking for art around the intersection of Asian American and Black identity. I mean, race, identity, creativity, this is like my artistic dream come true. So I called up my friend Austin, who is an amazing musician, poet, rapper, thinker, and we dove straight into it. What we struggle with as men of color in a white dominant society and how our experiences are both different and similar. There's so many times that I walk around with my head down in the world because there are people that are dressed in suits that are white people that are talking loud because there's a cop car that goes by, because there's a group of minorities that is not my minority and I don't know if I'm going to be able to immediately connect with them. I t- it's not even that I feel invisible, it's that I try to be invisible. Because heaven forbid I actually stand out and have to suffer the repercussions of that still. Yeah, that's why I'm grateful for the stage. Hmm. I think there are parts of me I try to hide. Okay mostly my Asian-ness, but in many ways, like, I'm trying so hard to be visible in white America. And that's why I, fi- I find the stage free. Really? Yeah. Does that, does that, it's almost like the polar opposite yeah, of what you just, I, man, just we are said. literal yin and yang. I would like to be allowed the freedom to just float in regular life. And then when I'm on stage, it's different. It's like, no, you're specifically dealing with this funnel, with this conduit that is Austin. Every day outside, I am performing something. I feel mm-hmm. that. And I catch that in myself. I hate it, but I catch it in myself. I think it's, I think it's kind of the perceptions that, that of, white, of white supremacy that we're trying to counter okay. in how we present ourselves, right? So, you know, black man threatening uh you know threat threat okay. threat so like i want to be chill um asian man for me it's like submissive 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 silent uh buddy buddy um tiny dick um yeah. uh just like that whole short run. yeah right and so there's a part of me that really like wants in that sense i really want to be seen like all your misconceptions are, are bullshit. Wow. I, I, I fully understand. Word. Well, not fully. Yeah. I never fully The Korean American community, it mostly revolves around church. And I feel like a fish out of water in that, in that space. I mean, I, I can 
go through the motions. I can fit. I'm a chameleon. I mean, I've been doing that my whole life. Same here. Yeah, me, right? same here. But at the same time, I have a lot of grievances and a lot of like cultural critiques of that institution. Yeah. But when I'm with specifically Korean American creatives, Korean American musicians, mm-hmm. um, who have left that world and kind of are on the margins of society, I think there's a there's a real synergy that is hard to hard to explain. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful feeling. I, I'm in, I would say, African-American environments and black environments. I can go to a family reunion. I can go to a church. I can go to a space and communicate with people. And the conversations always revolve around the same thing. The type of, the type of man that I should be. The type of black person I should be. The type of millennial I should be. All of these should be's. But in creative spaces, I am who I want to be. And I think that's that level of specificity is unreal. Thank you for sharing that with the world, Joe. What do you hear as you re-listen to that section? Well, obviously, there's white supremacy and how it oppresses us, even though it paints us in drastically different strokes. Austin is so masculine that his very existence is a threat. And I'm so emasculated that I'm a kid that you can punch without any consequences. But listening again, there's also the insidiousness of how these stereotypes lead to Asian American and black communities distrusting each other. Pit those stereotypes against each other and you create a breeding ground for conflict and mistrust. So to talk publicly about these stereotypes with Austin is empowering. You know, most of my younger years I spent running away from these stereotypes, but being able to dive deep with Austin and name the oppressor for what it is, it It fills me with purpose and direction and the feeling that I'm on a team with someone who is also fighting to dismantle white supremacy. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Joe. You know, listening to you is a powerful reminder that this idea of a conflict between Asian and black communities really only serves white supremacy at the end of the day and pitting marginalized groups against each other never benefits either marginalized group. And so I'm hopeful that your conversation with Austin and our conversation today is absolutely taking some of that power back. Okay. And now here we are at the end of our show. My co-host today has been musician and storyteller Joe Kai. Joe, thank you so much for being part of this Asian invasion of speakers forum today. Asian invasion! (laughs) Kristen, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm, I'm really honored. You can find a link to Joe's site and the full audio from his conversation with Austin at KUOW.org slash speakers. You can also find there a link to Joe and Austin's new song. Joe, you're going to take us out with this. But first, thank you all for joining us this hour for KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm Kristen Leong, and if you have stories to share or feedback on today's program, send me an email at engage at KUOW.org or tweet at me at KUOW Engage. Now, Joe Kai, thank you again, my fearless co-host. Tell us what we're listening to and take us home. This is the creative fruit of my conversation with Austin. It was such a cathartic song to write and filled me with a sense of purpose and optimism as, as we move forward. Uh, shout out to Sean Stack of Fat Cat Recording, who mixed and mastered the song. This is I See in Color, featuring Austin Antoine.
Yo, yo. Breaking news, another accident occurred Another black death that has the nation at a loss for words And yeah, more news is sad to see Yeah, another black that bleeds Yeah, another tragedy Yeah, just don't be mad at me See, I don't dabble in identity I live it Right and wrong side of history don't really make a difference If it's just performance You know, post support on Instagram But when it's time to live this shit It clashes with your different plans I live between the know-it-alls and the no-nots Steady balancing between a soapbox and a robot Trying to fight a program Cause we all been scammed Why should I dim who I am just to hide the light that I am So fuck the antics and semantics We can build up from the basics You created a victim then blame that victim for what's created That's some limited arithmetic I know this angle Tell them pull up by their bootstraps just to run on broken ankles Well, I'm past this woe is me poetry A solution seeking human being moving through what's thrown at me And while mastering this balancing act I still tell the world I'm proud to be black that's a fact. Every time I think I'm getting close to running out of home, I see him coming. Take a moment, tell the story with the friendly right around. I feel him coming. That's a fact. I don't care if you think I'm over that. The little condescensions of the lies you padded on my back I'm not your little sidekick, not the model minority I don't owe you any favor, son, you colonized my country Now you're dangling some scraps and you're calling it success And when the others fall, you say, I guess, they weren't the fittest Well, survival isn't what my parents broke their backs for Wept and prayed for, nodded and bowed for Pretended not to care about your bullshit for It was for freedom To be not as you see, but as I breathe and speak my life into being Loved Fed, blessed, giving, generous, wise, community building, wielding, this intellect with empathy, fighting for those bearing the weight of white supremacy, tired of waiting for a better day to come to me, but the only way things change is for us to see the enemy playing, dividing us spiritually and physically, redlining, voter suppressing, segregating, broadcasting, stereotypes, phenotype, code switching, Licking your lips, divide and conquer, self-righteous, saviorous, save yourself, letting the color do the heavy lifting. Every time I think I'm getting close to running out of